You can argue with plenty of things and pieces of a woman, a skilled but heavy-handed drama now landing on Netflix after a tour of the fall film festivals. But you can't argue with the monumental performance by Vanessa Kirby at its center. That's from Ty Burr of the Boston Globe talking about Pieces of a Woman, our featured debut here on Cinephile. As always, thanks for checking us out. Also reviewing a documentary called Time, which has been earning rave reviews from all sorts of critics, including the National Society of Film Critics. They gave out their awards for the best films of 2020. Time, to no surprise, was named as the best documentary. Speaking of documentaries, we'll bring in Lance Oppenheim, Some Kind of Heaven, which is a terrific doc available Friday, January 15th. We're going to talk to him about that. He's got a great story about Darren Aronofsky and just making documentaries in today's era. And in honor of prison movies, which is what time is all about, the documentary, The Mount Rushmore of Prison Movies. So all that more coming up. I appreciate you, as always, checking us out here on Cinephile. And please do uh, go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to all the support along the way. My cousin Nusrit just powered through every episode. Unbelievable. Alpha Hillwan, he never misses an episode. My man Hillwan's the best. He's been asking for my top ten list. I'm waiting for the screener to Nomadland. I still haven't received it. I hit up Ben Lines. I go, well, what did you do? So he gave me the link to, to email for it. So hopefully I'm going to get this sooner rather than later because this is starting to get a little bit frustrating that I'm waiting for Nomadland. So I, I feel like I can't do a top 10 list without seeing Nomadland, which is a heavy favorite all over the place, but I may eventually just lose patience. Maybe next week I'll do my top 10 of 2020 here with Joe because eventually you don't want to be you know, in the middle of March here giving your top 10. So we'll see. Um, also, thanks to Brett Carrick. Represent here in Hohokus, never misses an episode, so I appreciate all of that. Uh, okay, let's check out some reviews here on uh, Cinephile. Doc Lou, Iowa, excited to see One Night Miami. The Sam Cooke song was great intro in Ali. That's a great point, actually. Sam Cooke was used to, I remember the trailer for that, had Bring It On Home to Me, which was great. Uh, Joe said he hopes for more diversity in the director category. Of the last 12 winners, one has been an American-born white male. All right, well, Joe wants more diversity to continue. Of course, we're very excited what Guillermo del Toro's done, Alfonso Caron, uh, Alejandro Gonzalez and Iritu, all good stuff. Um, great podcast, Larry4523. Loved you on the Lebetard show with Stu Gotts. Huge fan of Cinephile. Appreciate you. Uh, don't worry about the pods being too long. They fly by. The optimal 35 minutes is not enough. Okay, that's from S Max 6. Okay, I appreciate that. That's some good feedback. I always worry, uh, you know, if it's too short or too long. But uh, terrific communication skills, fun and rapid style. Love Mount Rushmore segments, Oscar reviews from the past. All right, thank you, S Max 6. The optimal 35 minutes is not enough. Good to know. Uh, e Hild as well. Uh, Adnan does a great job of reviewing recent movies without being overly pretentious and snobby. The best part about the pod is he and Joe have so much fun along with great chemistry it shines through they will also go back talk about older movies of all genres the guests are great continue to improve as the podcast grows in credibility keep up the great work you'll have at least one loyal listener as this has become my favorite podcast i look forward to it each week and even put five maple leafs it's incredible right give a five-star review and a five maple leaf review so i appreciate that um one here from dblack 519 wanted to say how much i enjoy the podcast I really enjoy hearing about movies I haven't seen. How about doing a Mount Rushmore Dustin Hoffman movies? He has had some great roles spanning over 50 years in film. All right, let's make a note, Joe. Next week, Mount Rushmore of Dustin Hoffman. Uh, so we look forward to that as well. Uh, yeah, I think those are the reviews. Thanks, everybody, for commenting. Apple Podcasts, once again, subscribe, rate, and review. Pieces of a Woman. It's available right now on Netflix. Martha, played by Vanessa Kirby, and Sean, Shia LaBeouf, are a Boston couple on the verge of parenthood whose lives change 
Irre- oh, I always say irrevocably. When a home birth ends in unimaginable tragedy, thus begins a year-long odyssey for Martha, who must navigate her grief while working through fractious relationships with Sean and her domineering mother, Ellen Burstyn, along with the publicly vilified midwife, Molly Parker, whom she must face in court. The director is Cornell Mondruso. The writer is Katja Weber. And it is a fantastic movie. It is going to be in my top ten list. Hopefully I do it next week. I'll get that out of the way right now. Uh, the reason I want to see it was Vanessa Kirby, who's getting a lot of Oscar recognition. I think McDormand's the favorite for Best Actress. Vanessa Kirby's going to get nominated for Best Actress. Her performance is simply outstanding. <clears throat> you can't imagine what she's going through. Unimaginable grief, as the uh, headline there says, unimaginable tragedy. And that's involving the birth of a child. You can only imagine uh, the joy, the euphoria, but also the strenuous labor, the uh, exhausting energy that must be given in this incredible pursuit. It is literally once in a lifetime for so many people. And the best part of Cornell Mondruso's film is the first 30 minutes. Seemingly no cuts. I'd have to look up uh, how they did this. Maybe a little bit of uh, an homage to what Sam Mendes did with 1917 and Roger Deakins, the so-called invisible cuts. You know, at some point there are cuts. doesn't look like it. But this looks to be 30 minutes of no cuts. I mean, it's just... One long tracking shot as she's in labor and Shia LaBeouf plays her husband, trying to help her and coax her through. The midwife's unavailable, so they go with the other midwife. Molly Parker shows up. That whole sequence is absolutely incredible because it really does show you the highs and li- excuse me, the highs and lows not only of child labor and birth, but also just of life. You're with a partner you love. They're there to caress you, to hold you, to coax you through it. But there's also, as I said, excruciating pain, the pain that only mothers can know. Nobody else, I have no idea. I could never appreciate the kind of pain a mom goes through delivering a baby. And Vanessa Kirby, who I do not believe has children, again, I have to Google this, she does just an exquisite way of conveying all that pain, as even this midwife is there trying to help her get through to what needs to be done. Spoiler alert, things don't go as planned, which is why, as I said, the year-long odyssey as she works through her relationships. The domineering mother, give it up for Ellen Burstyn, reunited here with Martin Scorsese. So Marty's an executive producer of this movie. He saw it, loved it so much, that I'll put my name on it. Hopefully that will help the traction, so to speak. That also happened um, with Uncut Gems, the Adam Sandler movie, because when Ben Lyons and I were there, we talked to the Safdie brothers, Josh and Benny. And by the way, Benny is in this movie, so there's connections all over the place here. Benny Safdie, co-director of Uncut Gems, has a role as Chris in this movie. But I remember we talked to him, and I said, oh my God, Marty is involved with this. How? And they go, well, he just liked the movie, and said, sure, you can put my name on it if it helps. It wasn't like he's in the editing room. He's not giving us suggestions. He's not helping with marketing. It's if you're a fan, you put your name on it, which makes sense, right? If you're Steven Spielberg, you can help a movie get distribution, have it say Steven Spielberg presents, Spielberg executive produced, etc. Um, you know, if you look at um, uh, Derek C. in France, uh, who has put his imprimatur on Sound of Metal. You know, again, my cousin Nusser, Ron Rossillo, like, oh, I love that guy. He's great. What a director. Can't wait to see how we direct him. Like, well, he isn't actually the director. Sound of Metal is directed by Darius Martyr, but C. in France puts his name on it. You go, okay, I know who that guy is. He did Blue Valentine. Oh, he's a really good director. It's got that sensibility. So first off, kudos to Marty for putting his name on this. Because it gives it a little bit of juice. Now, Ellen Burstyn and Marty, of course, way back when. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Uh, Back in 1974, that film won Ellen Burstyn a Best Actress Oscar. That was after Marty had made Mean Streets. He said, I want to do something different. He goes, I know nothing about women, but I'm willing to learn. And Ellen Burstyn said, okay, fine, you're the guy. And obviously, incredible performance, wonderful movie. So it's nice to see her in here again. Burstyn's going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She's got one scene in particular, kind of brings to mind Beatrice Straight in Network, which I call to mind because that is the Academy Award winner for the shortest ever performance, five minutes and 40 seconds. It's basically just one big monologue she does to William Holden. 
And in this movie, Alan Burstyn's got that one Oscar scene, so to speak, a monologue she gives to Vanessa Kirby, which is fantastic. Other than that, she's not in the movie a whole lot. You know, she's in this movie maybe 15 minutes, but it's Ellen Burstyn. She's fantastic. She'll get nominated. Kirby's going to get nominated, as I mentioned, which brings me to Shia LaBeouf, who I think is a terrific actor. I mean, Honey Boy, Ben Lyons said it was the best picture last year. Scott Feinberg loved it. I think I had it as an honorable mention. I definitely gave it at least three Maple Leafs. And Shia LaBeouf is terrific in this movie. You know, he is very emotional and prone to outbursts, and he falls off the wagon dealing with this unimaginable tragedy, whereas Kirby is so inward and holds all those emotions. Both acting styles are exemplary, but both are very different. But Shia LaBeouf's not going to get any Oscar consideration, because if you Google his name right now, you see stuff about an ex-girlfriend saying sexual assault allegations and abuse, and you go, oh my God, all right. There's even one scene which is incredibly uncomfortable, in which he's doing kind of that behavior, and you go, oh God, is this uh, already imitating life, etc.? All of which is to say, if you can separate that from the movie, I think he gives an excellent performance. I really think he's an excellent actor, but I don't know what's going to happen now because of what's happened off the field, as they put it. Uh, Sarah Snook's also in the movie. If you're a succession fan like me and Joe, right away, go, oh my God, Shiv's in the movie. So she's got a small role there. Um, as far as Molly Parker is concerned, she plays the midwife. Again, small role, but really well done. So there's a lot to like about this movie, and I haven't even really gotten to the directing of it and the fact that you know, this movie's working on multiple levels. It's not just stellar acting. It's not just a script, which maybe in some ways has um, reminiscent of Manchester by the Sea. Family dealing with grief, how do you overcome that personal tragedy, relationships are frayed, etc. But it's also the directing. I mean, it is just marvelously shot by Cornell Mondrusco, who's a director, again, I'm not familiar with, but... You at times feel like the scenes have such raw passion to them, they're coming out of a Cassavetes film. And yet if you see how well it's directed, you realize that, no, this is very well choreographed, and the blocking is done in a certain way, and this is really well thought out. And all of that collides to give you a very emotionally profound conclusion. How do you overcome tragedy? How do you deal with loss? How does it impact other relationships? And how do you eventually try to find... Um, you know, a sense of, of resonance. You know what I mean? Eventually, how do, how do things turn out for you that all of a sudden life is better for you and, you know what, you can kind of find the will to live and to move on? Those are all the questions that Pieces of a Woman deals with. It's outstanding. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs, top 10 of the year. It's available on Netflix. I encourage all of you to check it out. Joe? And, and you're right. It... it... It's a fantastic movie, but it is a heavy watch. I had to take breaks at certain times when when I was watching it just because it is such, you know, a heavy subject of this loss and grief to cover. But I think the thing that separates this movie and one of the things that is a testament to why it's so good is that, you know, there's a lot of movies that come out that are dramatic or melancholy for the sake of it or the sake of drama for the sake of how far can these characters go down and this movie even though the the this terrible thing has happened and it's causing this you know frail frayed relationship amongst these really close family members the acting the writing and the direction are so good that it never feels like they're being dramatic for the sake of of drama and just doing it to a cheap score to get audiences to cry and I think that also has to do with the slow burn of the movie and the slow pacing and to your point earlier that one shot of her delivering the baby that lasts it seems like 30 minutes is incredible but the thing I appreciated about it was that it was so well done that it wasn't dramatic for the sake of being dramatic what what do you think of that 
Yeah, I think you know there's lots of different levels to this, and you know you worry about, like you said, pacing because when you're putting the audience in this film in this scope, you have to realize, hey, this is going to be an intense journey, and I think that all the elements collide together. You know, you, I think what happens is that you kind of uh, appreciate the pace, and once you settle into the movie, you can go along with the rhythms of the picture. You know what I mean? Like if you're watching a movie and you're expecting constant frenetic action and you don't get that, that, that impacts your viewing. But if you go into it and you're kind of, I don't want to say lulled into the rhythms because you always think of lulling, putting you to sleep. But if you kind of appreciate the rhythms where it's going, then I think it's effective. You? Yeah, no, I completely, I, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, once it took, for me personally, when I was watching, once I got used to the pacing, the story, to your point, just unfolded in front of me. And, th- and this next point has nothing to do with the movie but Vanessa Kirby has amazing hair. There are some really dramatic scenes, and I'm just looking at her saying, oh, man, she has fantastic hair, whoever's doing it, you know? Uh, she does really good <laughs> I like that observation. She does have really good hair. I mean, whenever I think of good hair in women, I just always think of Jennifer Aniston. But you're right, Vanessa Kirby, she's definitely in the mix. Uh, all right, from now on, we know. Joe, thumbs thumbs up. Great hair on Vanessa Kirby. We look forward. Listen, hopefully we have the Golden Globes, like in person, the Oscars in person. People are going to say, what are you wearing? Joe's going to say, no, let's look at her hair. Let's focus on the hairstyle of Vanessa her hair. Kirby, right? We're gonna, we'll do a breakdown on that uh, in the days ahead. All right, next one, time. Documentary on Amazon. As I said, you look up any, you know, best of the year, you're going to see time getting a lot of love for best documentary of the year. Fox Rich is a Fighter, the entrepreneur, abolitionist, and mother of six boys has spent the last two decades campaigning for the release of her husband, Rob G. Rich, who is serving a 60-year sentence for a robbery they both committed in the early 90s in a moment of desperation. Combining the video diaries Fox has recorded for Rob over the years with intimate glimpses of her present-day life, director Garrett Bradley paints a mesmerizing portrait of the resilience and radical love necessary to prevail over the endless separations of the country's prison-industrial complex. All right, once again... This is not exactly light fare here in Cinephile, but it is important. It is impactful. And we know one thing about the issues of social justice and where 2020 led us to. It is, if you didn't have empathy or sympathy before, you sure as hell should have it now. And if you're watching a documentary about people who made a terrible mistake, there's no doubt about it. You can't commit armed robbery. You pay the crime, do the, you know, sorry, do the crime, pay the time, et cetera. But at the same time, as soon as I heard this, I go, 60 year sentence for a robbery. That seems insane. Again. I get it. It was a moment of desperation. There has to be penalties, and then you have your penance, but 60 years, my God. And that's why Fox Rich is saying, all right, hang on, this isn't right. And so then you have uh, the familiar struggles of trying to overcome a prison system, which is uh, not fair and balanced, which does not allow all sides equities. And so therefore, you're already dealing with a deck that's not exactly full. In addition to that, as I mentioned, Fox Rich is also being a mother of six, so she's got an insane challenge I know how much I appreciate my wife as a mother of four. I can't imagine a mother of six in the mixes as well. So you're not only working hard, you're providing for your family, you're also trying to help your husband get released from prison. There's a lot going on in this documentary. And Garrett Bradley does a terrific job of making it seamless. And I think what you're left with is multiple emotions. One, which is great empathy for the characters. You have great admiration for Fox Rich. And you have a real sense of sympathy and just hope. You say, God, if you could overcome this, if you can have such horrible memories and try to find some 
some positive light in there. And if you can, you know, again, all the cliches, I get it. If you can turn lemons into lemonade, then there can be things that are really so impactful. And I thought Ian Freer of Empire put it well. Time may be shot in black and white, but the world it captures is anything but clear cut. By turns moving and angry, it's a thought-provoking hymn to love, family, and the power of black female courage. Also, Sandy Angelou Chen of Common Sense Media, this is an unforgettable documentary about one woman's fight to have her husband released early from an unfair prison sentence. And lastly, Joe Morgan's turn of Wall Street Journal, an intricately crafted tapestry of the family's upheavals, heroic struggles, and hard-won triumphs. I'm giving this one three beliefs, Joe. I'm not surprised it got so much love as far as the critics are concerned. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets a nomination as far as the Oscars are concerned. Time currently available on Amazon. Uh, Mark Simon liked it. I'm sure he liked it. Uh, it's definitely one to check out. Like I said, I also like the way it was shot, black and white, hypnotic at times, in the way you see this family which has unraveled and is now trying to piece itself back together. Joe? Yeah, and the, I mean, th- this last year particularly, it seems there's been so many more you know, socially conscious uh, movies, and this, this seems to be a real hard-look take on the prison industrial complex. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's listen, I'm not the guy to be smart enough to figure exactly why there's so many flaws for the prison system. But yeah, I mean, this documentary, I think it does a good job of pointing out the pitfalls. But at the same time, you know, unlike uh, the Ava DuVernay documentary, uh, this is more about the family and how they're being impacted by it. So um, I think the name escapes. Me. Everyone knows what it is. The DuVernay documentary she did talking about the prison system. Uh, you know, that is more a clear cut example of why it exists as it does, why it's so unfair towards people of color and and why just, you know, it's in badly in need of an overhaul. You know what I mean? Like eventually you just go, hey, listen, this is not working out. Why can't we fix this? Or here's why we can't fix it because there's money involved. And there's all sorts of different elements to it. So 13th is what I'm referring to. That's the documentary she did on 2016. So that really kind of exposes the racism uh, involved with the prison system and just racial inequality, as I said, in the United States, how it's just disproportionately filled with African-Americans. So time isn't nearly as focused on that, but it does focus on the family. And like I said, has some hope in between uh, all the sadness there as well. I saw one review where they where they note that Rob Rich wasn't. They don't actually show him in prison uh, during the documentary. And if that's true, like, do you think that that choice cheapens, or, or if showing him in prison would give a completely different perspective for the viewer? What's your take on that? Yeah, it may have. I think that was kind of a smart choice. Sometimes it's like, well, is the documentary about whom? Is it multiple characters? Is it about his journey? But I thought it was a smart move by Garrett Bradley to say, you know what? I don't want that to, to uh, distort your perceptions of what this story is about. The story is about Fox Rich. And like I said, female black courage and empowerment, et cetera. So let's focus on her, keep the camera on her. Rarely is there a scene without her in it. So I think that's a smart move. Now that you mentioned it, you don't actually see the husband in prison. You hear the phone calls and you get the backstory. But really, this is Fox Rich's story. Uh, we'll get to our interview in a second. Some news to pass along. Again, all the uh, awards chatter. Chloe Jaws, Nomadland. You're going to keep hearing people say Chloe Zhao. Trust me, I looked this up. It's pronounced Chloe Jaw. Chloe Jaws, Nomadland, led this year's National Society of Film Critics Awards, winning the top honor in four categories. Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Cinematography. 55th annual voting took place on Saturday. Best Actor goes to Delroy Lindo for his role in Defy Bloods. Love this choice. Maria Bakalova. 
Borat's subsequent movie film wins the honor of Best Supporting Actress, and I love this one too. Sound of Metal star Paul Racy up for Best Supporting Actor. All the love right now for Riz, and deservedly so for Sound of Metal. I hope he gets on. I hope he wins for Best Actor, but Paul Racy is tremendous, so I love seeing the fact he's getting some love here for Supporting Actor. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom failed to get any of the top categories, was a runner-up in almost everything. Bozeman runner-up for Best Actor. Uh, Viola Davis uh, runner-up as well. Bozeman runner-up for Best Supporting Actor for Defy Bloods. Came in third in that category. So there's uh, some major awards news coming along. Best Screenplay. Can't get by on this one. Eliza Hitman for Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Uh, never entertaining, rarely exciting, sometimes boring, always one I would skip. That would be my review for that. Best Foreign Language Film is Collective. Don't know anything about that. Look forward to that. And Best Nonfiction Film, you guessed it, Time Wins the Best Documentary. A couple more news stories here for you. Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem in negotiations to play Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Lucy, I'm home in Amazon and Aaron Sorkin's being the Ricardos. Think about that. You think of like, you know, uh, the Bella Twins or uh, obviously the Kardashians. No, no, being the Ricardos. Sounds like, honestly, sounds like reality TV. No, it's a movie from Aaron Sorkin. It's about the relationship between the I Love Lucy stars. Having penned the screenplay, Academy Award winner Sorkin will also direct the film from Amazon Studios and Escape Artists. The film is set during one production week of I Love Lucy, a Monday table read through Friday audience filming when Lucy and Desi face a crisis that could end their careers and another that could end their marriage. Sorkin originally was going to pen the script only when Kate Blanchett was circling, but after enjoying himself on the drama of the trial of the Chicago 7, he decided to attach himself as a director as well. Being the Ricardos began to gain momentum after the trial of Chicago 7 came out on Netflix. Kidman and Bardem quickly showing interest in the couple behind TV's first family. Listen, Joe, you and I are a youngish. You're obviously younger than me, but we appreciate the golden age of television. I love Lucy. I mean, is there anything better than Lucille Ball shoving her, shoving her face with chocolates in the conveyor belt? Cannot wait for this movie. Me too. I'm really, really excited to see Nicole Kidman play Lucille Ball. But the thing I really like about it is that it follows them over the course of one week. And I love biopics like that. Jimmy All uh, All is by my side. The Jimi Hendrix biopic did that. But more importantly, the Chet Baker biopic, Born to be Blue, they kind of just focus on a period in their life. So I'm really excited just for that structure too with Aaron Sorkin directing and writing it. Absolutely. One more bit of news to pass along. Filmmaker Darren Aronofsky said his new movie to direct, and it's a whopper. Aronofsky is the helm of an adaptation of The Whale. MacArthur-winning playwright Samuel D. Hunter's stage play of the same name that Hunter will also write for the screen, E.W. has learned. Brendan Fraser will star. Winning multiple awards after debuting in 2012, the play centers on a reclusive 600-pound man eating himself to death at his apartment on the outskirts of Mormon County, Idaho. He wants to reconnect with his estranged daughter who's grown to become a wildly unhappy teenager. This is Aronofsky's first movie since Mother, which was an awful movie, with Jennifer Lawrence. Frazier was last seen on Doom Patrol as Cliff Steele, in addition to voicing Cliff's alter ego, Robot Man. A24 films which holds worldwide rights will release The Whale. I don't have a huge take on Brendan Fraser, Joe. I, I'm sure you love Encino Man. Uh, I did love him in Gods and Monsters. I like that in, me and McKellen movie. is really good. Aronofsky, I think, is a wild hit or miss. Like when he's great, like Requiem for a Dream, forget about it. Uh, but when it's bad, like Mother, I thought was just horrific. Uh, I don't think I've made it through The Fountain. But I, I'm intrigued just because Aronofsky is a guy. When it, like The Wrestler is like you know one of the best movies I've seen in the last 25 years. So I'm, I'm in. 
But I, I just think the, the idea is interesting, too. If I said to you, Darren Aronofsky movie, you're probably in, right? Brendan Fraser, you're like, okay, whatever. Now I tell you it's called The Whale. I'm curious what that means. Oh, it's about a man with a compulsive eating disorder. If anybody can make this fascinating, I'm sure Aronofsky can. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, he, he's definitely a director that I will always give a shot. Whatever movie he's coming out with, I will at least watch it one time. But I, I'm, I'm excited to watch it. It seems intriguing and for brendan frazier too this is kind of an a-list project if this movie turns out to be really good he could kind of be on the up and up again if you know what i mean yeah things could turn around here for brendan frazier there's no question about that uh those are the stories that we're looking at as far as making news in the world of entertainment mount rushmore is on the way but coming up next the director of some kind of heaven lance oppenheim plus the mount rushmore prison movies do not go anywhere Well, it's a real pleasure to bring in Lance Oppenheim. You can follow him on Twitter, at Lance OPP. Some Kind of Heaven is the new documentary. It can be seen right now in select theaters, and it hits VOD, Amazon, or wherever you rent your movies on Friday, January 15th. Uh, terrific documentary, Lance. I just watched it last night. Thanks for sending the screener. You're a first-time feature director, I understand. And this is a story about the Villages, America's largest retirement community, a massive self-contained utopia located in central Florida. You know, oftentimes I, I talk to filmmakers and say, okay, well, what aspect of this is about you? You know, everybody has their own influences. So that's my first question. I'm like, why are you making a documentary about this? Do you have a fascination with Florida and old folks' homes? What was it for you? Well, thank you for having me, first and foremost. Uh, I, you know, I'd say that the, less of an interest maybe with old folks' homes, but definitely an interest in, in um, I think, this this kind of in my mind, this uniquely American desire to escape reality, you know, and, and, and kind of form and cocoon yourself in, inside of a fantasy world where you can kind of lose all semblances of, of anything that bothers you and a place of mandatory fun where you can transcend your age by partaking in these very, um, you know, in some ways kind of Lynchian uh, activities. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, I saw the villages as this, as, as, as a, thematically a very rich place, visually very fascinating as well. And then this idea of, you know, a, a place where 120,000 people were moving to, to, um, they weren't from Florida. They were there to, to, uh, to, to basically, um, you know, leave behind all of their worries and be inside of this Truman show like bubble that reminded them of their youth. So, I thought there was something kind of interesting here, like uh, that reminded me of a lot of my favorite movies of Cocoon, uh, of of sort of the suburban sort of elements of, of, of like the beginning of Blue Velvet. I saw that. I, I was seeing obviously a lot of the Truman Show kind of reflected in the landscape. So I, I, I was fascinated by the setting and I, I just I knew I had to make something about it. Yeah, and listen, especially early on, I thought the cinematography was very striking and the use of slow motion and the, like you said, Truman Show definitely makes sense in the sense that you're in this, you know, surreal alternative reality. But I also felt a lot of Errol Morris while I was watching, which is about as high a compliment as I can pay because he's as good a documentarian as it gets. You've interviewed him twice here before on the podcast, Cinephile. How much of an influence was Errol Morris for this particularly or just as far as you approaching documentaries? 
I love. I I I I would be lying to, if I said I didn't love his films. I mean, I he's he's one of the great greats to ever the greatest to ever do it. Um, I think I I, I have specific reference for his early work. You know, films like Burn in Florida and Gates of Heaven, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, um, First Person. Uh, you know, I I I, I loved. Uh, I very very much uh, return to those movies as as sort of these very humanistic portraits of of of, of people, you know, and and, and the, the kind of slow build to just lingering with people, sitting with them, hearing them talk, not really cutting around them, you know, just letting them exist, and then you know, kind of magnifying and analyzing the contradictions that are sort of inherent in some of the, the decisions or, or their uh, uh, views and allowing a, an audience to just sort of reckon with those, those questions is, uh, is delightful. So I, th- there's definitely, I think, um, you know, while making this film, I think the, the approach of, of knowing that movies like Errol's early work exist, I think that, that was, in, you know, that was a, a, a kind of a guiding principle in some ways that I, I knew that if I was just curious enough and open enough and uh, talking to people that I eventually uh, hopefully would be able to crack something and craft something that, that, that hopefully had as much of, um, of, of a reverberance as, as some of his films have. Absolutely. There's nothing, something about reverberating. And again, what I liked about Some Kind of Heaven is, like you said, you think you're in this utopia. It's people, you know, on the back nine, so to speak, of their lives, just trying to luxuriate and find loved ones again. But then there's, you know, one interloper there who's unhappy, and you start to kind of, you know, look at this prepackaged paradise and start to find not necessarily the ne'er-do-wells, but also the negativity of that. What was that like for you when you were going through the process? Did you know going in, Lance, like, hey, I'm almost approaching this like an investigative journalist, like this can't be as good as it sounds? Or were you just kind of interviewing and discovering the stories that happened, I, it, 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 it was very much the latter in, in a lot of ways, you know. And, and I think, you know, the, the movie came from this desire, right? To, to, to initially, I had no, I had no clue that I would be stepping a foot in, 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 into making a feature-length film. I, I was just sort of fascinated by this, by the setting of the villages and, and the institutions of the place and how how the whole world operated there. Um, but I quickly kind of realized that setting that the setting you know, isn't story and it very rarely is, um, you know, that I would need to find something that, that, that went deeper and, and, and hopefully something that could take this really artificially constructed place and kind of turn it inside out, you know, a place that looks so artificial on its face, um, could become something different if you're spending time with people who are going through real problems and, uh, don't fit into it. Sort of the authenticity of the, you know of, of their emotional stories could could bleed into uh, the artificial construct of the place in interesting ways. The tension between those two things. Um, but you know th- that 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 idea and that approach really did evolve over time. Um, we were filming with a number of people who who are sort of scattered around the film. You see some of them in kind of the opening chorus um, where people are describing their experiences in the villages. Um, but it, 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 everything kind of crystallized when I met uh, Reggie and Anne and Barbara and Dennis, uh, the main subjects of the film. And, 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 and I think um, it wasn't clear to me just yet on how I would be kind of putting their stories together. But I did know um, if I were to look at the world through this filter of, of, you know, people who are not really fitting into the marketing brochure and people who also were you know, kind of in different relationship statuses. You have a married couple, a widow and, you know, a bachelor, 
I knew there was something interesting there that, that could, you know, um, maybe more impressionistically like ring true and, and, and work uh, in tandem with one another. I love the fact there's a balancing act. Like you said, you're trying to find out the right alchemy, and you certainly have found it with some kind of heaven. Select theaters, it hits VOD, Amazon, or wherever you rent your movies, Friday, January 15th. I encourage everyone to check it out. Your backstory, Lance, is interesting. Uh, I'm reading here, you sent documentary pitches to the New York Times, OpDocs, some were written treatments, others were actual shorts. Documenting, says Oppenheim, crazy things happening in my backyard, like the story of an armed vigilante animal rescue group rescuing discarded dogs being mistreated by their new owners in the Everglades. A no-go for the Times, the Dogmatic went on to win multiple awards at regional and student film festivals. Another short that year was Quicksand, an elegiac portrait of Oppenheim's grandfather in the final days of Alzheimer's. Good job, not for us. Oppenheim remembers the Times writing back, but again, the short went on to win festival awards and screen nationwide via PBS. Tell me about both of those projects, because I'm sure there was great vindication when they uh, received such a claim. Well, you know, I, I think at the time I was just sort of hungry to, to, to get anyone to, to, to see my work. And I, I, you know, I knew, I knew my films were, were not like the greatest things in the planet. I, so I, I wasn't expecting to, you know, go on and win an Academy Award or something after making them. I was just, you know, I, I, I felt uh, proud of what I had made. And I just, this was at a time where, uh, you know, several years ago when, when, when I think the internet was even more, uh, like when Vimeo staff, the Vimeo staff picks, Vimeo was Vimeo was hosting award shows and short of the week. And there were a lot of these places where you could get your work seen. And, um, you know, to me, those two films really did come about of, I saw in the case of the, the, the dogmatic, which is I'm, I'm cringing because that title is so ridiculous. <laughs> I wish I had named it something else, but um, you know, I, that was a film that really just came. That was a story that was, 25 minutes away from me and I, and I read about it in a local newspaper and I just kind of, in a similar way to how like the villages, uh, you know, how I approached the villages, I just kind of went, I didn't really know anyone there. Didn't really know what was going on. And and, and a very story, different story began to emerge while I was making that film. Um, and you know, the story with my grandfather was, was something that also just kind of turned, that was a personal project. I wasn't really planning on, putting that online or anything until I finished it. And, and, you know, I, I, I thought there was something, um, that film, I think in some ways has even more, uh, relevance to, I think just the films I want to make. And, you know, it, to me, it was, I wanted to kind of take my grandpa, my grandpa had dementia. He didn't really remember much of his, uh, of, of the things that, you know, he, he barely remembered who I was, barely remembered my father. Um, and after he passed, I, I found this kind of archive of this treasure trove of all these um, super 16, super eight, you know, um, uh, films that he had shot and cataloged for years. And some of the memories he had forgotten about, I actually had right in front of me. So, you know, these were films that I, 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 I don't think I, I it wasn't a matter of probably feeling vindicated, but it was a, it was a, it was a really, um, uh, you know, I was very happy that I could get people to watch them and engage with them. Um, even though they weren't the most polished and didn't look that great and everything else, there was just something kind of raw about the subject matter with both films that I think uh, attracted people to want, wanting to watch them. 
Well, speaking of bleak subject matter, I mean, you broke through after studying at Harvard's undergraduate visual and environmental studies program with OpDocs Long-Term Parking, which, by the way, is also the title of my favorite Sopranos episode, for those who are unaware when Adriana gets whacked. That that is also called Long-Term Parking. (laughs) That's season five, episode 12. But uh, your Long-Term Parking Lance is a seven-minute study of airline workers living in mobile homes planted in an LAX parking lot. What might have been a bleak study becomes an oddly uplifting tale of workers who have found personal freedom through their transient solitary lifestyles. Other OpDocs followed, including No Jail Time, the movie. I love this quote that said the teacher of prison sentencing filmmaking, the rookie mistake is to just slap someone on the couch and do a parade of talking heads. Pictures, that's what transports us into the world of empathy. Was that a lesson you learned fairly early on? That's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think so. You know, I, I, to, to me, I was, I, 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 I don't, I was always bristling against this idea that documentaries had to have a set sort of visual vocabulary that you needed to play with and that there was B-roll that was supposed to you know, cover images or cover interview clips. And certainly I think like maybe from a, you know, from a, from, from a, a place of how you're actually building something that may be the case. Um, but I, I always, I, you know, my, I grew up watching, you know, Robert Altman movies and uh, you know, I love Sarah Pauli's films and Lauren Greenfield's films and Paul Thomas Anderson's films. I, I was, I was interested in a different kind of um, John Cassavetes films. I was, I, I love these are all filmmakers that all are very formally adventurous and that the, that the style of their films um, are, is, is very much uh, dictated by the subject matter and, and, and the setting. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I think um, in the case of what uh, that Doug Passon, who's, who's quoted saying that in, in, from the No Jail Time, the movie, um, you know, the, the context of that whole situation, I think is, I think he's very much right that, if you're trying to make something that is incurred emotionally stirring, um, you know, the, the way you, you can't just sit people on a couch for, you know, couch and do a parade of talking heads. That's not going to move someone. What they, what you need to do is, you know, maybe you interview them, but you want to find moments in their lives and you have to spend a lot of time and you have to get to know them well, uh, that maybe illustrates something deeper and you want to capture things that reflect something from their experience. Um, so I, I, I do think that's the case. I do think it's something I was interested in even earlier on, you know, where I was, I, I, I knew that the, the talking heads approach, uh, you know, no, no shade to Ken Burns, who is, you know, another legend, but, but, um, but I knew that that was not something I was interested in doing. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more adventurous and maybe could blur the lines a little bit between, um, you know, how one would engage with a narrative film, um, but you're still watching something grounded in truth and grounded in reality. That's well said. I mean, listen, it comes in many different forms, and you're right. Burns has got his own style, which is unique, but I think you're right that ultimately it's a visual medium, and you want to try to make it as uh, captivating as possible. Last one for you. We'll let you get out of here. I see that Some Kind of Heaven was partly produced by Darren Aronofsky. How would you come into contact with such a great director like Darren? Well, a lot of emails, a lot of rejection, a lot of a lot of emails that went unanswered. I, 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 uh, and very sort of circuitous, crazy, you know, thing. I, 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 um, I, I had been trying, and I, I ever since high school, I just built this kind of spreadsheet of many of my favorite filmmakers' emails if I could find them, and I would do things that I'm not proud of and, and saying on the record. Uh, you know, I just was going through stuff like the Sony hacks and I was going through places thinking, you know, oh, maybe there's an email here. Maybe there's an email there. 
And then I would just sort of, every time I would make something, I would send it to, you know, a, a filmmaker I didn't know whose work inspired me in some way, shape or another. And Darren was certainly one of those people. I mean, I, I grew up loving his films, you know, obviously the Re- Requiem was, was a big one for me. And then, you know, as, as was movies like the fountain and the wrestler, um, they really had an imprint on my, on, 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 on wanting, you know, forcing and making me want to make films. Um, so anyway, long story short, I had, I had, uh, found his, finally had, had tried a bunch of different emails, didn't work, finally found something that seemingly the, my email wasn't bouncing back from him. Um, I was in the same film program in college that he's in. Uh, I had just made another film and I had sent, you know, probably an email once every three or four months for four years. Um, and finally, one of his creative executives found the email, uh, you know, responded to me, told me to please stop spamming Darren's inbox. Um, but he'd be, you know, he watched my work. He'd be happy to get together with me. Um, and kind of one thing led to the next. I met with Darren's creative executive. I showed him at the time what was just a sampling of footage of what I had captured. Um, and Darren had saw it and, uh, you know, was, was, I guess, impressed by sort of the formal stuff that was going on. Uh, I think the subject matter isn't so far away from, you know, like the sequences with Alan Burstyn in some ways in Requiem. Um, so I think he was attracted by something there and he knew that I was kind of coming from the same program, the same film program where we had a lot of the, the kind of common touchstones and, uh, different ways of, you know, the, the program that we both went to was, is, was very uh, grounded in documentary filmmaking. So there was, a, there was a really nice kind of, it was, it's, you know, this wasn't a movie where Darren was just slapping his name on and kind of walking away. He watched about five or six cuts and gave a lot of detailed feedback and kind of did uh, really engage with the material in, in, in a real way. So I'm very grateful uh, to him, and I'm also grateful that I kept sending those emails because I don't think I would have been able to get in touch with him otherwise. What's the lesson always? It's persistence, persistence, persistence. And uh, I love the fact that he was able to recognize your talent, and I agree with you. When he's at his best, I mean, uh, like you said, I reckon for a dream. and um, He's definitely an audacious filmmaker, and I think a guy like that who likes your work, that clearly is nice vindication for you. And you mentioned Ellen Burstyn. She's in a terrific movie called Pieces of a Wound, which we actually reviewed here on the podcast. Uh, That's currently available on Netflix. Most importantly, though, Some Kind of Heaven can be seen right now in select theaters at its VOD, Amazon, or wherever you write your movies. Friday, January 15th, Lance Oppenheim. Once again, you can follow him on Twitter, at Lance OPP. Lance, can't thank you enough for the time, for your insight. I know documentaries are are a tough hill sometimes, but I applaud what you're doing. And uh, continued success, and uh, hopefully you and your loved ones are getting through this pandemic as best as possible. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Take care. Mount Rushmore. All right, time now for the Mount Rushmore Prison Movies. Thanks once again to Lance Oppenheim. Great guy. Check out his film, Friday, January 15th. In honor of time, the documentary which I spoke about, Mount Rushmore Prison Movies. Seems fairly straightforward, at least the big choices. The Shawshank Redemption, where you can't quibble with Andy Dufresne and his inspiring escape from Shawshank. 
Amazing to think. It was a box office bomb, but resuscitated on home video. It's on TV every week. Incredible chemistry with uh, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. A story about male friendship. Clicks all the boxes, right? Shawshank obviously is a no-brainer. As far as other movies, when it comes to great prison movies, I'm going to go with Dead Man Walking. Susan Sarandon won an Academy Award for Best Actress. Sean Penn was also unforgettable as a prison inmate facing the death penalty. Strong chemistry, really well-directed by Tim Robbins, a thought-provoking prison drama there. That's my second choice. I kind of want to go with The Green Mile. I kind of want you to mention The Hurricane. You know, they're in the mix. But I'm going to go with A Prophet, which is a movie I don't know how many of you know, which is why I'm trying to give it a little more love here. So A Prophet was a film that came out in 2009, I believe. And this is one of these, you know, foreign films that is quite simply unforgettable. It's a climb drama following Malik Al-Jabina. He's a delinquent young Muslim man who is struggling to get by in a French prison. He's taken under the wing of a powerful mob boss. He begins performing regular assignments for him, proving himself invaluable to the imposing criminal. As Malik rises in the mob ranks, he gains more power, but also more enemies, a situation that eventually brings conflict with his mentor. A Prophet is a tremendous 2009 French film. Uh, Jacques Odier is the guy who directed it, also wrote the screenplay, and that's why I recommend that movie. That's also in my Mount Rushmore of prison movies. I know it's one, like I said, off the beaten path, but trust me, it is worthy of your time. Those are the three. So then you go, okay, maybe I love you, Philip Morris. Maybe Cool Hand Luke for Paul Newman eating a bunch of eggs. No, I'm going to go with In the Name of the Father. Daniel Day-Lewis insisted being locked in prison, literally, solitary confinement, playing Gerald Conlon, Jerry Conlon, his father, Pete Postlewaith. Don't you be lying to me when I can see the truth. Stand me in the face. Uh, incredible two-hander. Those two performances... Both remarkable, both nominated by the Oscars. 1993, really strong year for movies. I mean, I'm not even Irish, okay? In the name of the Father, has got to be in there. So my Mount Rushmore of prison movies goes like this. The Shawshank Redemption, In the Name of the Father, A Prophet, and Dead Man Walking. Those are my four, Joe. What do you got? I like that a lot. For my list, um, I have two standard prison movies. I have a curveball, and I have one that I really want to advocate for if... The listeners haven't seen it yet. The first two are Shawshank Redemption, no-brainer for all the reasons that you said. The second, I know you're hovering around it, but I'll go with The Green Mile. For me, that's another movie that kind of checks a lot of the boxes. It's a great actor. Tom Hanks is fantastic in it. Um, the third one, which I think qualifies, but kind of not, and that's Escape from New York, because in New York, Manhattan is the entire prison that they need to escape out of. That technically, I believe, is a prison, and it does count. My last one, though, is uh, this movie, this 2013 movie by David McKenzie. It was his movie that he made before Hell or High Water. It's called Start Up, um, and which is it's this British prison movie about this 19-year-old kid who's moved from juvenile hall to maximum security prison because of his violent behavior. He gets there, and his dad, who is in a life sentence at that prison, played by the wonderful Ben Mendelsohn, um, tries to get him to follow the rules, kind of like what you're talking about with a prophet. He, his dad works for you know the head of the prison, and he wants his son to get out, but at times it can seem like a documentary. At times it can seem ridiculous. It's called Startup, and it is fantastic. So my four are Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, Escape from New York, and Startup. 
I love the love. Okay, listen, I didn't even aware of this movie. Start Up, that's what it's called. Start Up, yeah. S-T-A-R-R-E-D, 2013. You mentioned David McKenzie, Hell or High Water. That's got enough of name recognition, I think, for people who know that movie. So I like the fact you went off the beaten path. Kiss of the Spider Woman. I remember in uh, high school, I had a drama teacher. Loved Kiss of the Spider Woman. I don't know if I've seen it in its entirety. William Hurt. I'll check that out at some point. And all the Elvis fans are saying, come on, Jailhouse Rock. Let's go. Uh, thanks, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Uh, please do hit us up, Cinephile Pod, or you can tweet me, Adnan Esferk. Again, appreciate all the love. Appreciate all those comments. That was very nice for you to all the post comments. And uh, keep it coming. Next week, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go with my top 10 movies of the year. And if Nomadland screener doesn't come, well, I can review it, obviously, at some point in time. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Movies.